Well, four times a year we celebrate what the Bible calls the Lord's Supper, and uh, in just a few minutes I'm going to share a little bit more about what that entails and kind of how we're going to do that here this morning. But it's a significant time, and whenever we celebrate the Lord's Supper here, what we typically do is we build our whole service around it. You know, it's worthy, the message that it proclaims is worth uh, is worth the, that, that amount of attention. And so for us, we don't just tack it on to the end of the service or, or uh, try to squeeze it in. We build everything around it because of the message that it reinforces. And so today is one of those days. Four times a year we do this and uh, always seems to be some of the best services that we, that we have all year long. So we're grateful that you're here worshiping with us today. Well, uh, you know, God has created us to be very visual people, hasn't he? And we, we're just wired that way. Some may be more visual than others. You know, some think in more concrete terms, but most of us, you know, we, we, we have to see it to be able to grasp. We have to see it to understand it. We're, we're visual people. There's a reason that you don't gather your family around the radio to listen to the Super Bowl, right? It's because you're visual. I mean, you, you, we just don't do that. Now, I know there was a day when you did that, but that's because there was no TV. And so, uh, with the television, you know, that's obviously what we do. I mean, we, we watch things. We want to see it. We want to just hear about it on the evening news. We want to see it on the, on the evening news. We want to see the video and the film at 11. That's, that's the way we're wired. We're visual people. When you have a sales meeting, right, or you're going to be sitting down with a customer or a client, or, or if you're making a presentation of any sort, whether, you know, in a classroom or, or otherwise, you're going to have visuals. You're going to have graphics. You're going to have, you know, uh, charts and numbers and pictures and all those kinds of things. Why? Because visual, uh, visuals help read reinforce the message. That's the way we're wired. That's the way we're created. When you text message, right? When you send texts, you don't just say, I'm having a great day. You say, I'm having a great day, smiley face, right? You got to put the little emoticon there. You got a little smiley face or the sad face or whatever else you've got, you know, thumbs up or thumbs down. That's just kind of the way, way we are. We're very visual people. Well, here's the thing. God has created us that way. God has made us as very visual people, but also in the same sense, I believe when you read through scripture and you start in Genesis, by the time you come through the end of the book, what you find is that God is very visual in the way he communicates as well. He's extremely visual in the way he communicates. For example, when he put Adam and Eve in the midst of the garden and he placed them there, he had created the garden in perfection. Adam and Eve were created in perfection. Everything they saw was, was created perfectly and was very good in the, in the eyes of God. When they were placed in the Garden of Eden, God gave them a command not to eat of one specific tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in that garden. And God put that tree in the midst of the garden, and, and, and he could have easily just told Adam and Eve, now you need to obey, and when you see this tree, I'm going to describe it to you. When you see it, don't eat of it. No, God could have just said, hey, I'm a God who's in authority, and so just remember that, try to remember my words. No, God didn't do that. He said, I'm going to put a visual reminder in the midst of this garden, and every time you see this tree, you're going to, remind it, you're going to be reminded that you are under authority, that there are boundaries to your existence, and those boundaries have been placed there not by yourselves, but by me. And every time they would see that tree in the midst of that garden, they would be reminded that there it was a God who is creator and that they were the created. It was a visual in the midst of that garden. And every time they saw it, they were reminded of truths that they could never afford ultimately to forget. Well, mankind would begin to, to grow, and uh, the way life would be lived would not be good. Sin would abound, wickedness would abound, unrighteousness would abound. Things would come to the place to where God ultimately was required by his own holiness to judge that sin. What he would do, the Bible tells us a little further in the book of Genesis, was that he would call one man, his name was Noah, and he would command Noah to build an ark. What a visual that was, right? Noah, rain had never fallen on the face of the earth. And here Noah is, and he's building this ark. 
And it would be Noah and his family, eight all total, that would be called by God to enter into this ark. And it's there they'd be saved. They'd be rescued from the flood that would come. Whenever that ark would come to land on dry ground, Noah and his family would come out of that ark and God would promise them by covenant never to flood the earth again with water. And he would put a visual in front of them. It's a visual that you still see today. It's a rainbow. And every time we see a rainbow today, we're reminded of that vis- just by that visual that God is a covenant-making God, that God is a God who makes covenants with people, and he holds to his word every single time that he does. Well, the people of, God, uh, the people of God's creation would, would begin to grow, and they would begin to expand, and they would begin to fill the earth, and there'd be one nation that God would call out of that group, the nation of Israel. They'd be God's own possession, and they would be living in slavery there in the land of Egypt. The time would come when God would seek to set them free from slavery. Nine times God's appointed leader Moses would come before Pharaoh. Nine times he would say, let my people go. Remember Charlton Heston, the big booming voice, let my people go. Nine times he would say that, and uh, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, would say no. Finally, the tenth time would be the tenth plague, the plague of the firstborn, where unless you had the covering of an unblemished lamb offered for sacrifice, the blood of that lamb spread over the doorway of your home, if you did not have that, your life would not be spared. The firstborn's life would not be spared. But it was the people of God that would be given that visual, that picture, that reminder that they would celebrate, ultimately for centuries still, where the blood of the Lamb spread over the doorway would visually remind them that God is a God who preserves and protects His people. God is a God who saves. God is a God who rescues. God is a God who redeems. God is a God who delivers. And in that visual, the, 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 the blood of a Lamb spread over their doorway, they would be reminded instantly every time that that's the way God operates towards His own. You look at the laws in the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament, laws that when you begin to read on January 1st, and you say, I'm going to read through the Bible this year, and you get to Leviticus, and it talks about mold and mildew and all these laws that you're thinking, why is all this in the Bible? You know, laws like for the people of Israel not to sow more than one kind of seed in their field, not to wear garments that contained more than one type of uh, 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 fabric woven into the garment, not to allow their cattle and their herds to, to, uh, to breed one kind with another. Uh, all those, those, uh, those rules and laws that were there, we think, why were those even there? There was a reason, because God was reminding him, his people, every time they looked across their, their field, and they saw crops from one type of seed. And every time they looked into their herds and they saw one type of animal. And every time they looked at one another in their own clothing and they saw fabric that was, that was only one fabric, they were reminded they were one people serving one God, distinct and holy and set apart, not to mix with the people who did not honor God. And it was a visual for them every time they saw one another, even in the clothes and the fields and the herds, that they were set apart by God. And yet those people would live lives as they would grow as a nation so separated from God for who he was. They'd be immersed in so much sin that God would send prophet after prophet after prophet. One who would be perhaps the most shocking visual of all, his name was Hosea. God would command Hosea to marry a wife that would be unfaithful to him. You see, God's people had become so unfaithful. And God was communicating to them that even in your unfaithfulness, I'm a God who takes my covenant seriously. And in your unfaithfulness, I will remain faithful. And so he calls his prophet Hosea, Hosea, marry a woman who will be unfaithful to you. Many theologians say she she was a prostitute. She was so unfaithful. And yet in that visual, God was telling his people that just as my prophet Hosea is called to be faithful to one unfaithful, I am faithful to you. Jesus would ultimately come the master communicator. No one would communicate like Jesus. 
Matthew chapter 6, one of many examples I could give. He's talking to a crowd of people that have gathered. And he's talking about the, the need not to worry, the, the, the command not to worry. And I believe perhaps as he's speaking, there was a flock of birds that came by. And he looks and points, I believe, as they fly over. He said, look at the, look at the birds of the air. You mean your father takes care of them? I believe he turned and he looked to a field of flowers. He says, Look at the flowers of this field. Even Solomon in all of his splendor was not arrayed as these flowers in this field, and yet they'll die and they'll wither. And God clothes them in this way. Will he not, in the same way, and even more so, take care of the needs that you have as well? Jesus would provide a visual. He tells stories, we call them parables. Luke chapter 15, he told the story of a, of a woman who'd lost a coin. I mean, who hasn't lost something, right? And you turn up the, you know, all of the furniture upside down looking for this thing, the value that you've lost. Jesus tells about a woman who'd lost a coin. He tells about a shepherd who'd lost a sheep who drops everything and he goes looking for this sheep and he's got to do everything he can, even, even absorbing uh, danger to his own life so that he can find this one sheep. He tells a story about a father who had lost a son in that same chapter, a father who stood waiting with a heart that was breaking for his son to come home the prodigal son. And Jesus would tell these stories, and as he would, they would paint visual images of a God who, who is a loving God, a God who is passionate for his creation, a God who desires people to know him and is at work searching and seeking for those that are separated. Jesus would use visual after visual after visual to the point where we come in the end of the Gospels where his whole purpose for coming would be fulfilled. Maybe the greatest visual the world's ever seen would be the visual of a cross. And there's Jesus hanging there, fully God, fully man, giving himself as a sacrifice, picturing for all to see the ugliness of sin, that it requires death. And yet the absolute amazing love and grace of a Savior who would take that just for us to know him. There'd be an empty tomb it would be yet the, another visual. Peter and John would be the ones that would go running there and they'd be sent, the Gospels tell us, looking to see, uh, uh, looking because they heard that Jesus had risen and they go running to the empty tomb and it would be a visual they would never forget walking inside and they would see the uh, burial cloths laid out and know Jesus, he, he was alive. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 5, for those who place their faith in Christ, he says, you're to be a visual. You're salt in a world that needs to be preserved, you're sought through your relationship with Christ to a world that needs to, to taste what God tastes like whenever they experience him through you. That you're light, you're the light of this world, Matthew chapter 5 tells us. You're the visual for this world to see so that your coworkers and your family and your friends and your neighbors and the people that you, that you uh, navigate in the circles of life, when they see you, they get to see the light of Christ through your life. You're poking holes in the darkness everywhere you go. That your job is not just a job, it's a way to put Christ on display. Your talents are not your own. They've been given for you, for you to be able to use to put Christ on display. And the list goes on and on. You are the visual, Christian, that God has placed in this world so that this world gets to see what Christ looks like. And even today as we celebrate, we celebrate a visual. Bread and juice that represent the body and the blood of Jesus. In the economy of God, he chose for the church to be able to celebrate a visual that reminds us of, of who we are. And why we are who we are, because of a Savior who gave everything for us. You know, before, before we were created, before anything that we read of in Genesis was created, you know, the, the Bible says the earth was formless and void. I mean, there was really nothing except for God. You know, God created the nothing. That's a deep thought, isn't it? 
But God is eternal without beginning, without end. Now, I'm no artist, and you're about to learn that here in just a couple of seconds. But God existed before time. And yet the Bible tells us that God chose to create mankind. He didn't need us, but he created us. Adam and Eve and everyone since then have been created by God. We exist solely because of our creator. And yet the Bible tells us in just the third chapter of Scripture, in just three chapters into that big old book you hold in your lap, the Bible tells us that we sinned as an act of our will. And what happened is the Bible says that all of us have sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. Is that while we enjoyed unbroken fellowship with God in the garden, the Bible tells us that because of our sin, we were suddenly separated from God. There was a great gulf created between the two of us. The Bible says that the wages of that sin in the book of Romans, the wages of the payday of that sin, the Bible tells us is death. If you've ever read in chapter 5 in the book of Genesis, what you find is that the death bell rings over and over and over. It says, so-and-so lived and then he died. So-and-so lived and then he died. Over and over in Genesis chapter 5, we read that, and he died and he died and he died. And it's because God said to Adam and Eve, in the day that you rebel against me, the day that you, re- that, that you sin against me, in that day you'll surely die. Physical death happens, obviously, on a daily basis. Our day is coming one day. We don't know when it is. But even more so, the Bible says that 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 sin brings spiritual separation from God, spiritual death, to where we are dead on the inside, dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2 says. Now, we're smart people, aren't we? Because what we do is, and we're very intuitive, we're very uh, creative in that we try to come up with a system to get to God, a system to bridge this gap somehow. And we start doing good deeds and, and we, we can list them, can't we? You know, we're going to start going to church and we're going to clean up our language. We're going to start living a little bit better on weekends. And we have all these lists of things to do. You've had those lists. I've had those lists. And basically, it's just a list of good deeds. And we're hoping that this list of good deeds will somehow bridge the distance and get us to God. Surely God will let me into heaven and give me a relationship if I give a lot of money to the church. Surely if I go consistently, you know, he'll show favor to me and, and I'll be a Christian. Surely if I help people and, and do all these good deeds, God will accept me. But the problem is, is that every one of those good deeds ultimately falls short. It's like trying to long jump the Grand Canyon. Granted, some get further than others. But at the end of the day, we all fall short. And that sin separates us from God. And there's not one good thing that we can do to bridge the distance, the Bible tells us. And yet it was in this context, this is bad news. This is really bad news. But yet Romans 5 verse 8 says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that what our own good deeds and our own self-effort could not accomplish, God initiated and God completed and God did when he built a bridge through the cross so that sinful people like us could have a relationship with a holy God like him. And in that transaction that took place, what Jesus did was he conquered death and he brought victory you know the question then is not what is God still yet to do so that I can know him but what is my response to what he's already done because he's already built the bridge but we know not everybody's on the other side and so what do I do to get there the Bible makes it very simple It says that it's as we turn from our sin, that's repentance, right? 
that as we turn from our sin and in that same motion we place our faith in Jesus, we trust Jesus to forgive us, we invite him to apply his payment on the cross to our lives, we surrender our lives to him. It's as we do that that we cross the bridge to the relationship with God. And for some of you this morning, many of you, you've done that. You've, you've crossed over and you have a relationship with God. And, and you remember, maybe it was decades ago or maybe it was just a few weeks ago. And you prayed and you asked Jesus in whatever words you knew, Jesus, please just forgive me and wipe my slate clean and come take over my life. And you cried out to God and he heard you. And you have a relationship with God that is never, ever, ever going to end. And you've repented and you placed your faith in Christ. But the question for many, perhaps, today is, where are you in this picture? Because there are some that are on the other side, but there are others that I believe are way over here. You know, you're so far from the edge. You're, you're so separated from God. And you, you may realize it, you may not, but it's really not a consideration at this point in your life. The one thing I could say, and I can't ever talk you into it, but the one thing I would say from one person to another is just that you need to really be considering of the choices that you make regarding Christ because they're the only decision that you'll make that'll last forever. And at the same time, I would say that if this is where you are, to really be attuned to what God's doing in your life and around you, because God loves you so greatly that he's going to pursue you so that you can have a relationship with him. Some of you are right there, but yet there are others. You are right on the very edge. <laughs> you are so close, and you've started coming to church because you knew there was something missing. You've started having conversations with other Christian friends because you knew there was something that you needed. You've been thinking about things you've never thought about before. You've started reading the Bible, and yeah, there are some things you don't understand, but something there captivates you. You've even started... Uh, considering maybe praying or wanting to serve, or, and yet you've never come to that place where you've chosen to cross the bridge to respond to the gospel and to begin a relationship with God. You know, the good news of the message is, here it is, and I'm almost done, that you don't have to get good enough to get there. <laughs> that if you're ready for a relationship with God today, the only thing you do with a heart that is authentic, a heart that is genuine, is you respond to the work that's already been done. And you say in words similar to this, Lord Jesus, I need you, and I'm ready today to turn from my sin and to give you control of my life. And when you pray a prayer like that, and your heart is genuine and authentic, and you're not just playing games, or you're not just giving lip service, but you really genuinely desire a relationship with Jesus, what he'll do is he'll hear that prayer, he'll answer that prayer, and he'll begin to change your life. I promise. And so where are you in this picture today? How close are you and how ready are you, if you've never done it before, to give your life to Jesus right here today? Not with fanfare, not having you stand, not having you, you know, draw attention to yourself, but just simply willing to invite Jesus to take it all. And if you've done that, how willing are you to live a life now that puts him on display every day so that when others see you, they see him. No confusion, no muddied water. They just see him through you. With heads bowed and eyes closed. The message you've heard today is just the simple message of the gospel. It's a message that people have stumbled over, the greatest minds in history have stumbled all over it because they've been unwilling to bow before a Savior. And yet it's a message so simple that even a child can understand and respond. And many have. But for you today, I want to give you the opportunity that if you've never given your life to Christ, 
and your desire today is to place your faith in Jesus, I want to give you the opportunity. And there's nothing magical about the words that you'll say. What God cares about is the condition of your heart, the attitude of your heart. And if you genuinely mean it today, you can begin a relationship with God and you can pray expressing that to him in a prayer similar to this. Lord Jesus, I need you today. I believe that you are God and I believe that you came for me and that you died as a perfect substitute and that you rose again. Today, Lord Jesus, as an act of my will, I lay down my sin and I invite you to come into my life to forgive me of all of my sin and to take over. Help me to live a life that honors you Help me to live a life that puts you on display. And thank you today for saving me for all of eternity. In your name, amen. God, I trust that there were some today who you've been working in, Lord, for a while. Lord, it's not a fancy song or a crafty sermon. Lord, it's just the simple message of the gospel and your spirit drawing that I, I really hope today has, has brought some into a relationship with you. Lord, we praise you for the God that you are. We thank you for the changes that you bring to our lives. And Lord, we thank you that when the cost was, was considered, Lord, that, that you took it all. You absorbed it on the cross. A cost that we deserved, you took upon yourself. And so God, today for many of us, we stand grateful for the price you paid for us. And God, I trust for some today that have just begun a new relationship with you, Lord, we're grateful for them. Thank you that you have done work in them that will never end. And so, God, as we prepare now for our invitation and ultimately the Lord's Supper, bless the decisions that will be made, we pray. We thank you for this time, and it's in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to